0: I'm JJ Heller, and this is Instrumental, a show about the big and small moments that shape our lives. In every episode, my guest and I start near the end of their story and work our way back to the beginning. I hope our conversation reminds you that every second matters because none of us knows which moment will be the one that changes everything. Hello friends. It's JJ.
1: Hello enemies. It's Dave.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we welcome everyone to this space. If you are an enemy, I hope that this podcast is a good influence on you.
1: And you become a friend.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of friends, today we get to introduce you guys to our friend Harris the Third. Back in 2017, we were trying to figure out what to do next in terms of our career, and we were not really sure. And and so we heard about this story conference that was happening in Nashville, and we went and it was incredibly inspiring. What
1: what do you remember about it?
0: It was held in downtown Nashville mm-hmm. at the Symphony Hall, the Skirmer Horn. Mm-hmm. And Which was, is a
1: beautiful building. Yeah,
0: it's gorgeous. And there it was a carnival theme. And so not only was the entire auditorium space decked out in carnival theme, but even the lobby.
1: And there were like carnival performers and there were different actors walking around in character. And it was like stepping into a different planet or something like yeah, that. Yeah,
0: totally set the tone to just be open to new things and new ideas.
1: I mean, it was sort of like the TED conference for creative people, yeah writers and actors and singers and filmmakers and just people who want to tap into inspiration.
0: Yeah. It felt like an honor to be there, actually. So our guest today, Harris Third, is the person behind the entire story conference. And I'm so excited that he agreed to be on this podcast.
1: I remember being at the conference and wondering, who comes up with this kind of stuff? <laughs> like, who chooses this roster of people to inspire others? Harris is the guy to answer that question, right? So we're going to jump into his story. Just a reminder, we tell people's stories backwards. JJ, take it away.
0: Act 3, oh, buddy. Harris wears many hats. He is an illusionist, a film producer, a writer, and a storyteller. He's convinced that all of us have a superpower. I'll let him tell you what it is.
2: Steve Jobs said the most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. Hmm. Plato is often summarized by saying he who tells the stories rules the world, or he who tells the stories rules society. Like if storytellers are that powerful, someone ought to be gathering them together to have a conversation about that. Because with that power comes some pretty big responsibility. Really, the the deepest calling is to gather storytellers together, have conversations around helping them understand and own their power, and then to leave inspired and equipped to do their best, most creative work as they tell those stories. So we're really just trying to build now a community. It's not just a gathering. It's how do we build a community of the best storytellers in the world and if you're like well I'm not one of the best storytellers in the world but I want to be a really good storyteller like that's how we all become the greatest storytellers in the world you kind of have to tell a bunch of bad stories before you start telling the good ones right <laughs> exactly the only way to become a better storyteller is to tell more stories yeah you, know, you got to put it into practice yeah and it's crazy how it's grown to think that this was just a conference or just a live gathering and then to have a few hundred people show up and then to now have you know, 15,000 people around the world that are regularly plugging in, chatting, watching, consuming content, even if only 10% of them can make the trip to Nashville. It's pretty crazy just to think about the growth that we've experienced and all the beautiful stories that are coming out of that.
0: Can you think of any specific stories from anybody who's come to the story conference or somehow influenced by story?
2: It's often less of these like seismic shifts where we take a Fortune 500 company or Fortune 50 or whatever and be like, oh, I came to this conference and it revolutionized everything because there's still one person that has to go back to an army of people that have creative culture and now they're swimming upstream, right? And it's really hard. And so I think it's small little incremental changes that get me excited that I think will be fun to measure and look back at that question that you just asked me a decade from now and try to trace the ripple effects of what was that little change that was sparked a long time ago by that one person or those four people and that small team that came. But when you have creative directors from companies like Apple and Google and you have Disney Imagineers and leaders from Nike and Cirque du Soleil, it's like, gosh, our hope is that they take a little small piece of this and it goes back and at least sparks the beginning of something that will feel seismic. Where we get the seismic shift that you're asking about is really in the life of these solo entrepreneurs or freelancers or artists who came feeling hopeless because they're trying to fit their art into this commercial driven model. That's all about how do I please the marketplace and for them to walk away, not just feeling, but understanding there's hope to actually honor the story that they're actually meant to tell in the art that they're supposed to create and to realize that there's actually more long-term success rooted in that than trying to settle for the status quo of, fitting into the watered-down approach of creating whatever the masses want to consume. Yeah, And so that's what I love. You know, I love watching people give birth to a vision they didn't think was possible, people writing books that they've been sitting on for 10 years that they never wrote until they finally came and sat in that room for a couple of days or tuned into one of our webinars for a day. That's the kind of stuff that's pretty exciting to me. Filmmakers who leave making a documentary they wanted to make for years and years but never had the courage to people who feel trapped in this giant corporate culture and they feel like the loner. And then they come to story and realize, Oh, I'm not alone anymore. I do have a sense of belonging. I might be the weirdo in my corporate workplace, but I still have a role to play and to leave feeling empowered to play that role instead of change who they are. Do you feel like in the four
1: years that you've been running story, have there been any moments of doubt where it's like, I've made a horrible mistake? Or does it feel like you've just been marching down this path and you're just like, nope, this is full of meaning. I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. Like, how has this journey been?
2: Uh,
1: It's, I don't know if it's possible.
2: I feel like I'm both of those things.
0: (laughs) Uh, Sounds about right.
2: Yeah. I, I could not be any more confident that I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And yet every day I have doubt that, gosh, is it time to quit and hang it up? And that's just part of how I'm wired. I need to get better at celebrating the milestones and the wins. I live in the future. And so the what is accomplished in the moment always pales in comparison to what could be done and accomplished in the future. So it kind of feels like there's always work to do. One of my favorite stories about that was, I think it was story 2018. We were backstage, Brad Montague, who's a close friend of mine, speaks at story almost every single year. He created Kid President and a bunch of other really amazing things, amazing storyteller. And he and I were getting ready to go on stage after this highlight video played at the end of the conference. And we were going to sit down on two stools and read this kid's book that he wrote. I remember watching the video and him putting his arm around me backstage, kind of giving me a pat on the back going, you did it again, Harris. And I was like, did what, Brad? He's like, you did it again. Look, this was amazing. Like all these people, they're loving this. Like you're changing people's lives. This has been an incredible experience. And I was like, oh, Brad, there's so much more to do still. And he just goes, oh, buddy. And then like he put his arms around me and gave me this huge (laughs) (laughs) hug. And I will never forget those words, oh, buddy. I mean, what he said was, oh, buddy. What he really meant was my heart is broken (laughs) for your inability to see the beautiful art that was just created and how it has had such a profound impact on people. Hmm. And yet you can't stop and smell the roses because you're so focused on all the other gardens that you need to go plant. Yeah. And I remember after his hug, I was like, there's just there's so much work to be done. He goes, you can't have all the problems in the world. And I remember telling him, I was like, I know, but I at least need to try to solve the ones that no one else is trying to solve. And I just remember feeling like this huge burden. And so that's a good glimpse into some of the current journey that I'm on right now of trying to make sense of like, gosh, I'm so driven to try to solve all the world's problems because there's so much need and there's so many people that need to be inspired. And the more that the story community grows, the less that I feel that burden because I feel like I'm no longer carrying it alone. Yeah. And the truth is I was never carrying it alone. It's just that I was not in a community of other like-minded storytellers where I could be reminded on a regular basis that I belonged, that I wasn't alone. And so it's interesting how so many times we set out to tell these stories to serve these people or to lead a tribe and gather some peers and create this call to arms. But, you know, we're driven to do that because there's a new story that we want to tell that we want to change the lives of people around the world. But in the process of doing that, it changes your own story. Hmm. And so that has been my story with story. Yeah. Is that, you know, it was born out of this desire and need that I felt like there was some change that needed to take place. And in the process of trying to spark and create that change, the process ended up changing me. And this community has been super beautiful. I can't imagine my life and work without it now.
0: Dave, can you relate to feeling that way about milestones?
1: I certainly felt that way earlier in your career where there was just like, This nagging sense of panic that I had so much more stuff on my plate that I had to do and the job was never done. But lately, I feel like because we're making stuff and we're releasing it so consistently,
0: (laughs) um,
1: we get to celebrate every milestone as it comes What it kind of makes me think of is I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and there's a hill, really, in the middle of the city that's called Camelback Mountain. And there's a trail that's like a mile long, and you take it and you get up to the top of the peak. And you get to look 360 degrees around and just see how far you've come. Yeah, And I loved that experience. Like I was kind of a junkie for it. And it was hard work to get up to the top of the hill, but then you'd hike back down to the bottom and later you'd hike back up again and have that experience again. And I feel like falling in love with that experience of completion is so good for people. And sometimes it takes a friend like Brad Montague to tap you on the shoulder and say like, "Hey, Look how far you've come.
0: Totally. As you were talking, it was making me think that it's so much easier to celebrate milestones when there's a little bit of margin in our lives. Because when we're pushing ourselves at this frantic pace, there's always something else that needs to be done. But if we have space to breathe, then we have space to celebrate.
1: So this next act, JJ, starts in the early 2000s, which is like right around when we got married. Yep. Do you remember how our finances were when we got married? Oh, so tight. I mean, like, we shared everything. It was like we had one car, one cell phone. We didn't have cable. We barely used the air conditioning. In Phoenix. In our 400-square-foot apartment. Yeah. In the middle of the Arizona summer.
0: So that was our experience. Harris, on the other hand, was three years younger than us, and he had a completely different experience.
1: Well, let's get this party started.
0: (laughs) Okay. Act two... Awakening Wonder. Harris's journey to run story originated from a place of deep confusion and disappointment. He had early financial success, and then everything fell apart. Here's Harris.
2: The thing that made it such an interesting season of my life is how rapid everything felt like it took place. Because when you go from making a million dollars by 21 to being practically bankrupt by 22. That's a very short period of time, which really forces you to sort of take a step back. And I just remember constantly thinking like, what did I miss? What did I fall for? How did this happen? And so it was less uh, less feelings of overwhelm. Like you hear a lot of other people who end up in that situation where they're just, they went from having it all to having nothing but mountains of debt that feel like are impossible to dig out of. I remember fewer feelings of of overwhelm and more of just confusion and bitterness and anger and frustration, mostly towards myself. Like, why did you let this happen? And how did this happen? And I didn't feel like I was enough. And so I felt like I needed to buy that car to drive around so that people would look at me the way I wanted them to look at me. It was really this attempt to manage the perceptions of other people, which is really what I was doing as a profession, yeah, I mean, that's what a performer does, is perform. It's just that I would walk off stage and the show never ended, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when the show never ends, you got to keep performing so that the applause doesn't stop either. Hmm. And then you live for the approval of others, you end up dying by their rejection. And so I was desperately in search of clarity to try to make sense of the story that I found myself in. And the more that I realized the role that I played in that, that requires you to take this sort of self-responsibility and then I was just really frustrated with myself more than anything else. But I think the same drive that led me to make a million dollars by 21 is the same drive that kicked in and went, okay, let's not mope around in this. Like, how do we fix this? How do I take that responsibility and find a way to latch on to some hope that can pull me through?
1: Yeah. Do you have a recollection of that moment of clarity, like specifically, like, was it an actual moment or was it just a gradual
2: sort of
0: realization? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I remember there's a trick that I used to perform. We just called it Charmin because it involved a roll of toilet paper. (laughs) Um, And it's essentially, you know, get a volunteer to come up out of the audience and sit down in a chair on stage. And It's really funny. It has a lot of comedy because they become this little human toilet paper roll (laughs) just by sticking their fingers out in the air. And I pull a little bit of toilet paper off at a time, balled up into a little paper wad, and they keep guessing which hand it's in, but it keeps disappearing. It's gone. And the person who's on stage is just, their mind is blown. They're like, what is happening? Where is the toilet paper going? And the audience is laughing the entire time because they're seeing me throw the toilet paper right over their heads. And in the audience mind, they're like, how is he falling for that if it's right in front of his face? And really, it's just a concept that magicians call misdirection. The normal person on the street might just say that I distracted them. So misdirection is just a fancier word for that. But it's, it's pretty involved. You know, it's not just, hey, look over there. It's, there's a lot of psychology and even some psychological conditioning that takes place. And you sort of layer these things together, some distractions, some sleight of hand, some social pressure from the audience of being up on stage in front of your peers. And the next thing you know, you just basically become complacent. You just do whatever you're told to do. And so simply by shifting someone's focus, it's pretty easy for some truth to exist all around that person without them being aware of it. Hmm. I remember laying in bed at night thinking like, how did I get in this position? How did this happen? And the more I tried to sort of chase these different, Rabbit trails, you know, to try to figure out how these lies worked. That's like, oh man, it's the toilet paper trick. It's <laughs> someone told me to look over there and then I missed it over here. And so, so much of it was just about connecting the dots between how all these magic tricks worked on stage as I was performing every night. Something as simple as taking a wad of toilet paper and throwing it over someone's head and drawing the lines of correlation to how I was tricking and deceiving myself. And once you have that clarity, you go, I don't want that anymore. I want to ditch the lies. How do I get away from the lies? I want the truth. I just didn't know what the truth was. With all of these realizations came deeper desires to live a more authentic life, came deeper desires to not play a role in the manipulation and deception and continuing to be a part of the problem myself. So the idea of just traveling around and entertaining people felt super empty to me. And if that feels empty to you, you go, Well, now what do I do to make money? view myself as a speaker or a storyteller or motivational whatever, I was just trying to pass along some of the stuff as it was making sense to me. Certainly did not feel like I had it figured out. And I was like, oh, this is the truth that I need to go share with everybody. It was just more of like, hey guys, I think maybe we should all be more careful. Like, this is what happened to me. Can any of you relate to this? Like, maybe we should all stop making assumptions and be careful about where we place our focus and live a little bit more intentional life around trying to figure out what's true And so I definitely felt like I was on some sort of mission to live a life that was bigger than myself, to find some sort of meaning in my work that went beyond a paycheck and was doing that as many places as possible. And to get as many people to those shows as possible, you know, we would do everything we could, including like if there was a principal in a local school that would let us come in and do some magic tricks, whether it was like walking around in the cafeteria during lunchtime or doing a school assembly program, whatever. And so I was at this school, it was in Michigan, I'll never forget it. Because first of all, that is not an ideal scenario as a performer. You're in a gymnasium, sound system is going to suck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You're down on the gym floor, all the students are up on the bleachers, which are not quiet, they're not comfortable, sometimes it's hot, right? So we're in this gym, awful performance scenario, I'm leaning up against the wall, waiting all the students to file in and take their seats. And I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, this is going to be awful, like, why am I in this situation? And the principal comes in. He's like, hey, you're the magician. I was like, yeah. And He goes, you know how to trick people, right? I was like, yeah. He goes, well, go out there and tell those students how they're getting tricked and making the choices they're making. And that was a really fascinating sort of request because that's something that I was trying to make sense of in my own life. I had sort of connected the dots of how I tricked people on stage and how I was tricking myself. I would yet to be like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to travel to every school in America and help students make better decisions by <laughs> understanding how they're making the choices they're making. So I remember very little about what I did that day at that school. The only thing I remember is that I did a straight jacket escape at the end, got out of a straight jacket, like Houdini style. And I remember holding the straight jacket up at the end, not really knowing what to say, but feeling totally vulnerable, thinking, I don't know what your straitjacket is. I don't know what it felt like for you to watch me struggle to try to escape from this thing just now. A lot of you are probably trying to escape from something. A lot of you probably feel trapped and entangled by something. Whatever it is, I want you to know there's always hope. Don't give up. Hmm. And I remember finishing, and this girl starts walking towards me, comes down the bleachers. She's bawling. She has tears running down her cheeks. She walks up to me and says, hey, can I give you something? I have something for you. Uh, I said, uh, "Like, what is it?" <laughs> and she held out her hand, and I didn't know what to do, and so I just held out my hands and sort of cupped them underneath it, and she opened her hands and dropped a razor blade into my hand, and then I will never forget the exact words she said. She said, "That's my stray jacket, and I don't want it anymore."
0: Mm-hmm.
2: As she's explaining this to me, one of the adults came around the corner and was like, hey, back to class. There was some kids that were hanging out. She was one of them that turned and started walking away. And as she walked away, like a home video in my head, I can still picture her putting her hands inside of her pockets and her back was facing me. And so I saw her forearms and she had scars all up and down her wrists and her Hmm. arms. And I became desperate to understand her story and this need to understand made me want to get inside of her head and go, I don't know exactly why she would do that, but I know what led me to be bankrupt at 22. I know what led me to make a lot of the other bad choices that I've made throughout my life. And so how can I piece all this together? And I knew that there was a multi-billion dollar advertising industry <laughs> that was kind of like tricking people every now and then. Yeah, um, But that doesn't mean that marketing was bad. I mean, I was at that school to market a performance, to promote a show that was happening later that night that could genuinely inspire people and help them. So it's not that an entire industry was bad. It's just I needed to understand how they were leveraging this power. And through that, discovered you know, that the easiest way to sell perfume or a car or makeup or a certain brand of jeans is to create this void, this inadequacy in the life of someone and to make them aware of a problem that they didn't even know existed and to help them go to a place in their heads and their hearts where they believe I can't belong, I can't fit in, I am unworthy of love and acceptance unless I drive this kind of car, unless I wear these kind of jeans, unless my makeup looks this way, unless my waist size is this number. And that's when I discovered the power that storytellers have. I was probably 30 years old at the time. I was deep into feeling inspired to gather together other storytellers and have conversations about this and how we could change the world together. But along the way, I was sort of losing hope myself, I think because I was getting a little bit cynical. Because when you, I got to be honest with you, man, when you travel around the globe, exposing deception everywhere you can find it. You spend so much of your life telling people what is fake. Hey, don't believe that. That's not real. Hey, be careful. Don't fall for that lie. Hmm. And if you're not careful, somewhere along the way, there's so much fake that you begin to question like, gosh, is anything real? Is there any reality that I can like bank on and put my trust in? And that can lead you to a pretty dark place. I was probably at the height of my career at that point I was back on top, so to speak. I'd figured my life out as much as a 30-year-old can assume that he's got his <laughs> life figured out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Business-wise, it was fun. Like being broke was a thing of the past again. And I had performed for like 2 million people in over 30 countries and all these international tours. And I was at a 4th of July event that year. I was doing a fire breathing act where you breathe a giant ball of fire out of your mouth with a torch. It's like an old school vaudeville or sideshow sort of stunt. And I made a really stupid, foolish mistake. If you're gonna breathe fire, you have to have a flammable substance that burns that you're essentially spitting out of your mouth. And that flammable substance caught on fire before it was all out of my mouth. And so essentially, instead of spewing fuel forward, I dribbled fuel down my face and my neck. And I set my face on fire for about six seconds. Second-degree burns all over my face, my mouth, and I remember that night turning to Kate, my wife. She was looking at it; she's just like in awe, like horrified, look of horror on her face. And I'm like, "It's pretty bad, isn't it?" Because I had not looked in a mirror yet, but my face was like—I mean, it was just screaming. It hurt so bad. And she's like, "It's pretty bad," but we didn't really know how bad yet because it was still too soon. And so I remember facetiming with a doctor friend of mine who was also a magician, and like. He gave me some instructions, and he's like, you got two options. You can go to the ER, and they can do all this for you, or I can tell you what to do and call in a prescription for some burn cream, and you can do it yourself. And I was like, I choose to do it myself. <laughs> so, I mean, I spent the next, I was at least an hour of, like, in the bathroom. Kate couldn't do it because I wouldn't let her, not because she wasn't willing, but, like, tweezers and scissors uh, and, like, literally just trying to cut all the dead skin off my oh face. Oh, my gosh. Like, these blisters, uh, like, open up and breathe and Uh, yeah man it was a long journey it was probably he kept telling me that my face would have like red splotches all over it for like two years maybe forever but that they would fade over time and it was probably six months I mean it was miraculous that I looked the way that I look right now and that's not exaggeration but yeah it was man when you're in a dark place already and have felt like you're losing your wonder and you don't know what's real or true or good anymore.
0: And then your face catches on fire.
2: (laughs) And then your face catches on fire. I've had that happen
1: to me once. (laughs) It's not fun.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So the part of the story I haven't told you yet is about eight or nine months prior to when this happened, we had had our first child and it was weeks of me laying on the couch feeling sorry for myself, asking, why do you do this stuff? Why do you do magic? And I was ready to quit. And I looked down on my little baby boy, nine months old. And he's like, rolling around, crawling around, trying to get up and learn how to walk. And man, it was just, it was everywhere for him. The magic was everywhere. And it was so real. And there's nothing you can do to convince a one-year-old that magic doesn't exist, because everything feels so magical. And it kept happening, like, you know? Everyone has their own list of experiences as a parent. Like blowing bubbles on the back deck, I would blow bubbles. And I was like, it's just bubbles. But to a one-year-old or one-and-a-half-year-old or a two-year-old, there's no bubbles. It's just magic, right? This is these new experiences. And it was that season that becoming a dad and those moments of my perspective changing that reawakened my wonder taught me what real magic is. Hmm. And so, you know, from that moment, I was not the same type of magician anymore. As you can imagine, those types of experiences change you and that was when my work as a magician and the work that I was pursuing to lead and grow and develop a community of storytellers kind of intersected. And that's when story gathering was born because now it was less about the science of understanding how stories work. Like here's how to be an effective storyteller. Here's how to be a really good storyteller. Here's how to be a professional storyteller. It wasn't about the skill sets. It was about this higher calling and power that storytellers have to help people ditch an old story or a broken narrative and embrace a new one. And as storytellers, the only way we can help people do that is to tell stories that awaken their wonder and stir their imagination to the possibilities of what could be.
1: I'm sold.
0: I know. Oh, I love all of that.
1: Hopefully we don't have to burn our faces off to uh, (laughs) learn that lesson. I know,
0: yeah. Well, it reminds me of some of the lyrics in our song, Hand to Hold, the top of the chorus that says, may you never lose the wonder in your soul. Hmm. That's the kind of idea that resonates deeply with me And I'm singing that song over my children, but I'm also reminding myself because you grow up and it's so easy to lose that sense of curiosity and amazement at things when really amazing things surround us every single day.
1: Back to Harris's face. Okay. It it looks great.
0: I know. Honestly, it looks like nothing ever happened. Yeah. Also, we didn't mention this in the interview, but Harris's first book releases on October 13th, and it's called The Wonder Switch.
1: I'm sure there are plenty of good pointers in there for how to recover your wonder.
0: Yeah, I'm totally looking forward to reading it.
1: I'm looking forward to listening to it. I hope Harris reads it.
0: I know. His voice
1: is so soothing. It
0: is very soothing.
1: We're getting close to the beginning. This next act starts all the way back in 1991. It was a special year for me. It was? Yes.
0: Okay. How was it special?
1: Let's see if this reminds you of anything.
0: You know it's true. <laughs> Everything I do. Wow. Oh. oh. <laughs> Are you sweeping me off my feet right now?
1: <laughs> I I hope so. Just like Robin Hood, <laughs> Prince of Thieves. Yes.
0: Okay. Um, and that's why 1991 was special for you? I
1: love that movie. Do
0: you remember seeing it? Oh, yeah. My sister was obsessed with that movie.
1: Here's the thing with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Two things. Maybe One. Maybe a whole bunch of things. <laughs>
0: One. Kevin Costner had no accent for no apparent reason.
1: <laughs> Two. Christian Bale had a mullet. Three. <laughs> Three, some guy got his hand cut off at the beginning. Four,
0: the witch was really super scary. And
1: the guy who plays Snape is in it. And the best song in a movie soundtrack ever
0: I die for you. (laughs) Doesn't he slide up like that? Um, Not like that.
1: Oh my gosh, that movie's going to be 30 years old, like, next year. Time flies. So in the theaters, Kevin Costner was shooting bad guys with arrows. Yep. And Harris was about to have quite an amazing year. Yeah. Let's take this thing home.
0: Okay. Act 1, A Life of Magic. You're about to hear how Harris first fell in love with Wonder. This act includes a baseball glove, a trip to Central America, and a prayer request that changed everything.
2: A lot of this started in 1991, way back in the
0: 1900s.
2: (laughs) I was, you know, growing up as a little kid in that small town in Southeast Tennessee. It's funny as I was obsessed with baseball at the time. I sucked at baseball. I never got to play in an actual baseball team. I played every day I got off the school bus at my grandparents' house, which is where the school bus dropped us off. And I was so obsessed with baseball that even though I wasn't good at playing it, I was going to start my like trading card business. And so I started like amassing and trading baseball cards.
1: You were an entrepreneur even back then.
2: Yes, I was. And my secret was, you know, everyone traded baseball cards because they were drawn to a certain player that they were a fan of. And I had no affinity towards a certain player. And so instead of being loyal to my team or player, if you were offering a higher priced, higher valued card to me in exchange for the player that you wanted, that's all that mattered is that each trade leveled up. So I was obsessed with trading baseball cards. And I remember when I was nine, I was nine years old, the height of all that begged for a new baseball glove for Christmas that year and never got it. And I remember we went to my grandparents' house in St. Louis, my dad's side, got to their house a few days after Christmas and I walk into the living room and there's a box under the tree and it is the perfect size to hold a brand new baseball glove. And I was like, Oh my gosh, it's actually happening. This is it. And I rip open the box the next morning and it's a box of magic tricks. And I was devastated. (laughs) I was like, why would she buy me a box of magic tricks? Like a baseball glove is not that much to ask for. Uh, I remember going back to my room the room I was sleeping in my grandparents' house, throwing it over in the corner, pieces scattering around. I was like, this is so dumb. A few days go by, school hadn't started back yet. I'm bored. I learned my very first trick, which was like this little ball that you put inside of a little cup and covered up with the lid. It's called the ball vase trick. And I go into the living room like, mom and dad, gather around. Here's what grandma got me for Christmas. Thinking like, this is super dumb. I put the ball in the vase. I cover it up. It disappears. I put the lid back on, the ball reappears, their eyes light up, and instantly I was hooked. That was the beginning. I became obsessed with doing magic tricks.
1: This is pre-internet. So how did you end up kind of devoting yourself to the study of magic?
2: Yeah. Well, the next year, a magician appeared in my church. (laughs) It appeared?
0: How appropriate.
2: Um, Not like, yeah, not like puff of smoke. That would have been pretty cool. No, he, I think he had moved to town. His real job was to work at a factory that manufactured air conditioning units and stuff. But he was an amateur magician. That was his hobby. And he traveled around locally doing magic shows for people. And he was doing tricks for all the little kids at church. And my parents drug me there every Sunday. And all of a sudden, like... I couldn't wait to go to church because I was like, oh, the magician's going to be there. And so I begged him to become my mentor, became my first mentor. His name is Mr. Michael, was an amazing man, taught me so much, not just about magic, but just positive character and integrity and taught me my first professional magic tricks. That was over the course of being 10 years old. And then he took me to a conference, my first magic conference, which was another whole world going to a conference with nothing but magicians walking around that's pretty crazy. That was November of 1993. So that was 2 years after I got my magic kit for Christmas and finally got booked for my first official show. I got paid $25 January Cha-ching. of 1994. Yeah. So it sounds to
1: me like pre-magic you already had the drive to be entrepreneurial. And yes. this was a vehicle that you could use to expedite that.
2: Yeah, for sure. It was a combination of those two things. Like when my parents responded to that first trick, my first thought was not, oh man, I can make so much money. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Like it lit something up inside of me that was really beautiful and innocent. And it just felt so amazing that someone else looked at me with awe Hmm. because no one had looked at me with anything I'd done like that in my entire life. It was always like, yeah, keep trying, kid. Like maybe you'll be good at this someday, right? But now all of a sudden I'm doing things and people are blown away by them. And so that was incredibly affirming and very contagious. But yeah, it did not take long for me to figure out how I can make a living doing this. And I remember sitting with my parents in our dine-in kitchenette. We didn't have a dining room in our house. Gathering in our kitchen table and like there's all these receipts, it's like tax time. And I remember my parents basically explaining how much money I made and coming to the realization that it was more money that year than they had made combined over the last two years at their minimum wage jobs. My mom was a housekeeper at a college. My dad was a factory worker at a furniture factory. So, What did that feel like? Um, To be making six figures as a teenager just felt insane for a kid growing up in a town of a few hundred people. It served as a shield, I guess. For like all the ways that I wasn't cool, it gave me an ability to buy a ticket to acceptance instead of having to earn it based on who I was. I was bullied a lot as a little kid. I was not one of the cool kids. You know, had buck teeth. Most of my clothes came from yard sales and hand-me-downs or whatever the cheapest clearance sale was, the local outlet store. So, you know, I struggled to make friends until I got really into magic. And even then, it took a little while because it's hard for most people now to make sense of, but there was a time when magic was not cool. (laughs) So, like, even when I met my wife at... I was 17. She was 18 years old. It was, like, four months or something like that until I finally told her what I did. She was like, well, what do do you do? Like, you have a tie on and you have your own car? Like, this is weird. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm in town working with this company or whatever and just trying to learn and... (laughs) Yeah, when you finally comes out, it's like, what, you're a magician? Like, where do you prefer like, birthday parties? Or like, you travel with the circus? Are you like a carny? Like, how does this work? And so people conjured up different images. And so when you're going through middle school and high school and you do magic tricks at birthday parties, it does not score you a lot of cool points to find acceptance with the right crowd at school. Yeah, so,
1: I mean... It feels like there was a tension there for you where, on the one hand, it gave you a feeling of value while you were also, like, somewhat ashamed by the occupation.
2: Yeah, probably embarrassment would be the first word that comes to mind. I was a little bit embarrassed by my occupation, but yet I could cover just enough for It's like, yeah, he does, like, magic tricks or something, but he's, like, totally loaded for being a (laughs) 15-year-old. So there was a little bit of, like, imposter syndrome I mean, when you hear millionaires and billionaires talk about how how difficult it is to form deep friendships because you just don't know who is truly accepting your friendship for who you really are as a person. I mean, on a far different (laughs) level, (laughs) that's what it's like to make six figures as a teenager is that you're constantly skeptical about, sure, I have lots of friends, but really they're just kind of acquaintances. I guess if anywhere, the place I feel most known is from the story community outside of obviously the context of my own family and personal relationships. I think that's probably because it's the place where I've given myself the most freedom to allow myself to be known. It's the place where I've been the most vulnerable.
0: To me, like the themes that I've been hearing coming up over and over is kind of like there's the money side and then there's the wonder side. It's not like the money is bad, but it sounds like to me that the joy and like the life giving part of it is when you can kind of lose yourself in the magic of it and in the wonder.
2: I would call it wonder work. You know, you can certainly do work and make money. But if you find your wonder work, you can both make money but not root your identity in that money that you make because you're doing it for the wonder and not for the money. To me, that's how I look at my life and I'm like, yeah, that wonder was contagious. When I performed that trick for my mom and dad from the magic kid that my grandmother gave me, that is what turned my wonder switch on and it gave birth to all this possibility. Well, as I pursued that possibility through these other experiences throughout my childhood and teenage years they crushed my wonder. The switch got flipped off. And because that switch never got turned back on again until my early twenties, I spent that entire time making lots of money, but not making very much meaning. And so as a result, I was not wise with the resources that I had to steward and which is why I ended up practically bankrupt and broke.
1: So you couldn't afford to pay those bills. And I'm assuming you and your wife just had to have, like, a serious heart-to-heart.
2: Yeah, I mean, the catalyst of that was a trip to Central America. You know, I remember this guy calls me, and I had known him. We had some mutual friends. We had met out in town one day, and he's like, hey, man, so-and-so. it's like, we want to take you on a trip down to Central America to this place called El Salvador, I didn't really know what we were going to do He's like pack a bag of tricks. Like we'll do magic tricks for little kids and schools and orphanages. Like it'll blow their minds. Half of them never even experienced something like what you do. So my wife and I, we get on a plane, we fly down to El Salvador, and we interact with all these kids living in poverty. And I remember every single time we would leave a place, we'd get back in the van and all the workers were like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. Like that one kid and then this kid. And I'm like, I didn't understand why it was so special because that was a normal occurrence for me. I would go somewhere and make people feel those things. And then I would go on to the next place. And they're like, Harris, you don't understand. And I didn't understand. Like these were kids that were living on less than a dollar a day. Right. And so we do all these magic shows. It's super impactful, but it was more of like, Oh man, this feels really good. Like, it's so cool to like give back. And like, I'm such a good person because I'm volunteering (laughs) my time to come down and perform magic for these kids in poverty. And The last day, there were no more magic shows. They're like, let's just go visit some of the families. We're actually part of this really cool organization. And I want you to understand, like, how we're serving people in these different communities. We're like, sounds great. It's awesome. And we went house to house to house interacting with these families. And I will never forget this last house. It was like all the other houses that we went to that day. You know, one room house, living room, bathroom, bedroom, kitchen, everything's there in that one house. And for some reason, that's when it really started to sink in a little bit. I remember sitting there thinking, like, I've got it pretty nice, like, back home in America in my big, cushy house. But gosh, I'm, like, I'm so stressed out in debt, on the verge of bankruptcy. I can't even pay my minimum payments anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do when we get back home. And as I'm processing all of that and comparing my life with this life, this mom is sitting here explaining, like, telling us these stories about her kids and she's so happy and everyone's smiling and laughing. And it was almost like I had this like surreal experience where I detach from the conversation everything's in slow motion. And it's like everyone's laughing and talking and exchanging like ha ha's around you. And I'm just like, I can't believe the difference between this family's life and yet she's so happy in my life. And I've seemed so miserable. And I remember at the end it was this, faith-based organization. And so they were like, hey, before we leave, we'd love to pray for you guys. And someone was like, hey, Harris, would you mind praying for us? And I was like, uh, (laughs) sure, I guess so. I did not know what to do in that moment, if I'm really honest with you. I don't know that I had much of a faith left at that age. I was pretty cynical and it was just trying to make sense of my childhood and what I was told to believe growing up and found myself sitting in this little corner of this shack asking to pray. And I had this flashback to when I was a little kid and I was like, well, when I was a little kid in church, we always asked people if they had any prayer requests. So I paused, I asked this mom, I'm like, do you have any prayer requests? Translator translates it. And she looks at me and smiles and says, we don't really have anything to ask for right now. So instead, why don't you just thank God for blessing us so much? I feel all the emotions right now, even telling you guys that story. When you sit with a family who has seemingly nothing and their one single prayer to the God of the universe is just to say, thank you for blessing us so much. It's, it's pretty hard to come back to America and just continue on with business as usual. So as much as I loved trying to craft a narrative to keep myself from being embarrassed by my horrible financial decisions and all the lies that I found myself entangled in by trying to paint a picture of like, oh, I went on this trip and there were people in poverty and we came home and we wanted to sell everything we had and give it to the poor. We did the selling part because we had a desire to give to the poor. We just had nothing to give them in that moment. That's when I realized that some people are so poor, all they have is money. And I was more poor than they were. Gosh, if that family who has nothing can have that type of joy, surely we can have that kind of joy by parting ways with all of our stuff. Mm-hmm. To use terms that you would probably expect a magician or illusionist to use, I think it's a life of magic. You know, Roald Dahl famously said that those who don't believe in magic will never find it. And so most of us as cynical grown-up adults, we tend to roll our eyes at the concept of magic because it's like, oh, I believe in that when I see it. But to me, magic is just defined as these transcendent experiences that are hard to put into words. Meaning, purpose, love, joy, experiences with people that we care about, love in our family, kids. And so I think that's really what we're all in search of is magic, which really that's the best way to describe the intersection of my work now is When you look at that journey of trying to make sense of these stories that people tell themselves and who are the people behind leading us to tell ourselves those stories at the end of the day it came back to where i started when i was nine years old and got that magic kit from my grandmother which was a wonder the reason i latched onto magic wasn't because it made me feel powerful and all of a sudden i could fool people or trick people or get one over on them or whatever it was because someone else lit up i did something that i thought was dumb that didn't have any wonder and someone else was like, wow, that was amazing. And it was the first time that someone had looked at me with a look of awe and wonder in response to something that I had done. And that awakened my wonder because wonder is contagious. It gives birth to possibility. We as human beings sort of live as if seeing is believing. But if you turn on the wonder switch, reawaken someone's sense of childlike wonder to the possibility of what could be, well, now you've given me permission to believe in something that I've yet to see with my own eyes. Why not offer people stories that offer new realities that they don't need to escape from? And I think we need those types of artists and creators, and I think they're being born out of this movement that we're starting.
0: Yes, to all of that.
1: Talk about finding a mission that has meaning.
0: Yeah, I feel like I want to go make something now
1: you are right now
0: oh that is so true (laughs) I am making something thank you Harris (laughs) your effect is immediate (laughs) results may vary (laughs) I love that joke it gets me every time (laughs) but seriously I hope that you feel inspired after hearing Harris's story I know I do
1: I know, I do. I know,
0: I sound so Southern.
1: (laughs) Southern. I know, I do, and I hope y'all do.
0: I hope y'all do too.
1: (laughs) We're almost done. Let's do our final segment. It's called... Let's Let's Rewind 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 the the tape.
0: Harris is on a mission to awaken wonder in the people he meets.
1: Because he was inspired by the light he saw in his baby's eyes.
0: And the gratitude he saw in a poor mother in Central America.
1: A journey made possible by his career as an illusionist.
0: Which he never would have pursued if it weren't for a gift from his grandparents one Christmas in 1991.
1: If you want to find out more about Harris, visit harristhe That's H-A-R-R-I-S iii.com.
0: This episode of Instrumental was produced by me, JJ Heller.
1: And me, Dave Heller, with additional editing by Kyle Henson.
0: Our theme music is my song, Big Love, Small Moments.
1: That I helped write.
0: (laughs) To find out more about me, listen to more of my songs, or watch my music videos, please visit jjheller.com. That's two letter J's, H-E-L-L-E-R.com.
1: We'll be back next week with another episode of Instrumental.
0: So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.